0: you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's
1: bluehost.com. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
2: is tested far more strongly in a bull market than it is in a bear market. Being able to hold your Bitcoins in anticipation that this is going to become a reserve currency is very, very difficult when the Bitcoins you own move from you know a small fraction of your savings to a meaningful number or a life-changing number, as it has for many people in the last 10 years. So prepare your body because... <laughs> it's a wild wild ride and if you haven't been on one of these before you'll experience what i'm talking about
0: welcome back to the breakdown with me nlw it's a daily podcast on macro bitcoin and the big picture power shifts remaking our world the breakdown is sponsored by crypto.com and nexo.io and produced and distributed by coindesk What's going on, guys? It is Wednesday, November 18th, and today I am thrilled to share this conversation with Vijay Boyapati. Most of you will be familiar with Vijay, if nothing else, for his essay, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. This thing came out in 2018, is a 41-minute read, and is, I believe at this point, the consensus best place to send someone who really wants to understand a starting point in their journey around Bitcoin. As some evidence of that, it has been voluntarily translated into now 20 languages. It was something that Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy made all the people on his board read. It is just a phenomenal starting point for understanding Bitcoin in the context of monetary history. As we were recording this show, we were watching Bitcoin crush up through 17 and then 18,000, and it's impossible not to feel the start of a new move happening. We're finally seeing some of those mainstream media articles that are coming in as Bitcoin approaches its all-time high. And so what I wanted to do with this conversation was a few things. First, I wanted to look at VJ's recently shared frameworks for valuation of Bitcoin. VJ calls them valuation frameworks. I might call them something like mental models. It's a way of looking at what Bitcoin's real possibilities are and what that suggests for price. And I think they're an incredibly useful heuristic for also understanding where the world is as it relates to Bitcoin. So that's where the conversation starts. Where it ends, however, is with a re-examination of many parts of his bullish case for Bitcoin and a question of what has changed in the last two years? And what is likely to make this next bull run different? VJ is one of the most coherent thinkers in this space, so I know you're going to love this conversation. And so without further ado, let's dive in. All right, Vijay, welcome to The Breakdown. It's so good to have you here, sir.
2: Thanks, Nathaniel. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a while, so I'm, I'm glad to be on your pod.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and what a fun day to uh, to do this as well. Obviously, Bitcoin is having a uh, a seminal and historic day in some ways, so this should be a really fun conversation. Um, you know, I, I think most of my listeners will be familiar with you. Uh, for those who are not, in the intro, I, I just said that you basically are, uh, you know, the the sort of undisputed holder of the essential starting piece, the bullish case for Bitcoin. I think. That has become the default starting point for so many people on their journey. And you know what I thought would be really fun is there's a bunch of content and ideas that you've had obviously over the last couple of years <laughs> since you wrote that first version of that. But I thought part of what would be fun to do today is uh, is look at some of the look at the almost go back and look at some of the pieces of that and what's changed. You know particularly around things like your assessment of what the real risks are because it's such a different time now than it was then. Um, so I, you know I, there's lots of different places to go, but I'm sure we'll have a great time with it. Cool.
2: Sounds great, man.
0: So let's start with um, let's start with this idea of valuation frameworks because obviously we're in a, a kind of a big price action period, not just day, although it's a big day as well. And you recently had a thread about four frameworks for thinking about Bitcoin valuation, and I think that they're it's less kind of like if you're already involved in Bitcoin, here's four ways to try to value it. It's more meta perspectives on how to think about the asset as a whole. So maybe let's start with what got you thinking about this? And then what are these four frameworks?
2: Yeah, so I've been uh, trying to figure out the correct economic framework to understand Bitcoin since I first came across it in uh, 2011. Uh, And the question of how Bitcoin had any value at all really fascinated me. Um, And I I had a background in Austrian economics, so I felt like I had the the tools to, to understand something like Bitcoin and how it might have value um, and, and by the way I should say I have always found it amazing that economists especially monetary economists weren't more fascinated with this question um, you, you have this new monetary good uh, that you know a lot of people didn't think it was possible and it clearly has value on the market how is that possible and um, it, it's I think the most important, Economic question in the last century. Um, so I've been thinking about the economics of Bitcoin for almost a decade, uh, but it's only recently that I started thinking about valuation frameworks, which is kind of a slightly different mindset. Um, valuation frameworks is coming at it more from the perspective of like an institutional investor or you know venture capitalist when they look at something like Bitcoin, um, they're not as much interested in the economics, they're thinking like, what price should I assign to this thing? Um, And I've become more interested in it because I think this is the first cycle that Bitcoin is gonna go through uh, where uh, institutional demand is gonna be quite significant to the price movement of Bitcoin. And and so you're gonna have people coming in here who really want a, a framework to think about how they should value Bitcoin. Um, And uh, uh, so I I sort of went back and and thought about the frameworks that people had been using uh, over time and tried to assign a price target to each framework. And I thought there were four major frameworks that you could sort of assign to Bitcoin valuation frameworks. The the first one uh, has... Existed since the beginning, and it's the uh, it's the framework for people who dismiss Bitcoin out of hand and say this this thing is a bubble or a Ponzi scheme. Um, it has no it has no real intrinsic value. It's not uh, it has no comparative advantages to anything that exists today, uh, including the the fiat monetary system or to gold, for instance, which is a, a comparable monetary good. Um, And if you believe this framework, you would would assign a value of zero to Bitcoin and you'd think the long-term value is zero uh, because it really has no comparative advantages and is just built on air. So honestly, that framework has been trotted out a lot since 2009. Um, Bitcoin was even dismissed, funnily enough, by uh, some of the cryptographers who are now big contributors to Bitcoin, like Greg Maxwell, sort of dismissed this uh, new system in the early days because a, a lot of the early cryptographers thought this thing is not possible. So whatever's being created is, um, is just a scam. Um, and so uh, it, it's interesting to kind of reflect on the fact that even people who, who are very important in the Bitcoin ecosystem sort of went down this path of initially thinking this thing isn't worth anything. And I, I went down it as well. It's, it's the natural first reaction I, I believe when you come across something like Bitcoin. Um, so the second framework is valuation framework is to believe that this is kind of a niche monetary good. That's going to be attractive only to people who have an ideological affinity to Bitcoin. So uh, libertarians um, maybe people who are technologically savvy in Silicon Valley, uh, but but that the, there's a limited audience for this thing, and it's never going to break out into the mainstream. It's never going to be the kind of uh, technology that my parents, for instance, uh, are going to want to use or will understand. And <clears throat> if you believe this framework, you you believe two things: firstly, that it's going to remain a very volatile asset because If it's going to stay small, people moving in and out of Bitcoin are going to have a big impact on its price. Like individuals who come in and say, I'm going to put in $100 million to Bitcoin. And, you know, there are quite a few people in Silicon Valley who have that kind of money. Um, One person coming in and putting that kind of capital into a small asset could make uh, a huge difference to its price. So you would believe, if you believe this framework, that Bitcoin is going to remain very volatile Um, and you would probably assign a price target somewhere in the range of 10,000, which is around where we are now, to about 100,000, which gives it a market capitalization that's going to be somewhere in the hundreds of billions of dollars. It's going to be interesting, but never significant. Um, uh, the third framework, uh, which I I sort of think is, in my mind, I think this is the most obvious and I think the conservative framework is that Bitcoin is digital gold. It's primarily disrupting the market for uh, a global non-sovereign store of value. And if if Bitcoin... Uh, were to disrupt gold, you look at gold's market capitalization, which is around $10 trillion, that would put a price target of of about 500,000 per Bitcoin um, uh, as sort of the valuation framework you would think about. And the reason I think this is a conservative framework is that Bitcoin – excels along all the attributes that make for a good store of value. It is superior to gold in all of the attributes. It is more scarce than gold. It is more portable than gold. It's more divisible than gold. And uh, it's more transportable than gold. So perhaps the biggest comparative advantage that Bitcoin has over gold is that it's a store of value that you can easily uh, transport across borders or transmit across borders. And There is a lot of demand for people in places around the world who have some amount of wealth that they've built up through their lifetime or through their, you know, generations. And they fear for their safety or uh, they're living under an oppressive regime and they want to leave. And Bitcoin is an ideal store of value for that kind of person. Imagine you're a wealthy businessman in China and for whatever reason you're persecuted by the Chinese government it's very difficult to transport your wealth uh, out of China, carrying it in bags of gold. Um, or, or, for instance, the example I like to think of is the, um, the, the famous Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, uh, who was Jewish, and in World War II, he flew uh, f- sorry, f- fled uh, uh, Europe just ahead of the Nazis, uh, and managed to escape to America, but he was penniless. When he arrived in America, he had nothing. He had to restart his entire career, and he just had the shirt on his back. In, in situations like that, gold. Uh, sorry, Bitcoin is so significantly superior to gold that um, you could understand people at the margin deciding to save in Bitcoin rather than gold because it gives them that ability to leave if they need to. So, so the third valuation framework would put a price tag, uh, price target on Bitcoin somewhere between 300,000 and and a million. Um, And I go up to a million, which is higher than gold because I think that Bitcoin is superior to gold. So, in my mind, uh, a $500,000 target per Bitcoin is a conservative target because I see something which is, you know, a far better mousetrap. So, I would assign at least that kind of price level to Bitcoin Uh, and the final valuation framework, uh, which I think uh, if it ever comes to be is sort of, you know, a decade or more down the line is Bitcoin becoming the world's reserve currency. And, and, and what that means is it's the asset that central banks and nation states hold in reserve as their means of savings And it's akin to what gold was in the 19th century when gold was used as money globally. Um, And if you were to um, uh, assign a price target to this valuation framework, you would assign a target of probably in the order of $10 million per Bitcoin or above. It becomes the primary savings vehicle for the entire world. And it also, it strips store value premiums out of other asset classes which have a premium and are used as uh, vehicles for storing value. And that, that's a, there's a whole range of asset classes where this is true. Real estate is an example. Um, for instance, I live in Seattle and just north of me, uh, Vancouver is a city which is famous for uh, having a large fraction of Chinese buyers of real estate and, and it's real estate that they do not live in. They just buy it in case they have to escape China. And so they have houses uh, in Vancouver, B.C. Uh, as a store of value. Um, and so assets like that, in the case of Bitcoin Bitcoin becomes a store of value, will have that premium uh, drained from them and it will be uh, drained into Bitcoin and, and and there are a number of other assets too. Like, for example, fine art is is an example of an asset that rich people sometimes store value in.
0: I love this framework because uh, it's a great jumping off point for discussing uh, perceptions. I mean, people, people who listen to this show will know I, I talk about a lot of these things as almost narratives too, right? And they kind of define and set expectations. One of the things that I think has been really interesting to see is is in almost each of these areas, holding aside maybe the fourth, the world's reserve currency, there have been narrative shifts even within how people are discussing these these frameworks. So uh, tulip mania, right, is not really, like, there are very few people, I mean, you still see some people who think it's based on nothing in thin air, but the longer that it goes on, the harder that it gets to just dismiss it, right? It's been kind of meme on Twitter recently to uh, point out that tulips never had a second a second time or a third time or a fourth time or a fifth time. So that's been interesting to see, um, because I, you know, that's not just the Bitcoin Twitter people. That's also people in FinTwit who have come to this, um, the Libertarian limited, which is what I called your second framework in my notes here. Uh, the idea that it's kind of like a niche group, it was interesting hearing, um, Uh, Druckenmiller talk about this because he cited the fact that Silicon Valley money, West Coast money, West Coast tech money is what he called it, kind of loose-handedly, as interested in this, that is actually a factor that it's, it's almost like for him, there's enough of that money that it's worth taking seriously, even if he's not of the political class, which is a way of, it's different because all of a sudden that anchor, right, that anchor community becomes not a limiting factor, but a a a reason that it's a foundational factor. Um, I think that's really interesting, and even in digital gold, I feel like there's been a shift. I mean, you know, a lot of people have been here for a while, but there's been a shift in the conversation from digital gold as a descriptor of equivalence to a discussion of a potential disruptor. Right? That that, that all of a sudden, we're, when we talk about digital gold, we're not just talking about a digital equivalent of a of an offline thing, but a context in which the digital nature of it makes it so superior on a number of dimensions, and that has, I think, really shifted a lot of people, especially over the last six months, or at least it's felt like, is the, the entrenchment of the digital gold narrative, but realizing that inherent in that digital gold narrative is this set of things that make it have potentially much more upside even than just kind of a, a one-to-one, uh, you know, market cap comparison to gold now.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, that's two very interesting thoughts you bring up. There. So the first point I would make is that if, if you look at the industries that are, are dominant dominant in the, the U.S. economy, they've really shifted over time. So if you go, you go back like a long way, say 100 years or even 70 years ago, um, farming was a very important uh, industry in the U.S. economy. If you go back to the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, finance was a really important, probably the dominant industry, and it kind of peaked. Uh, in the, the 2008 uh, bubble uh, as, as a fraction of the entire economy. But now it's really technology, w- which is the dominant uh, industry in the economy. You look at the biggest companies on earth, they're all technology companies, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, and, and so you're right, you go to Silicon Valley and there's just a massive, massive concentration of wealth. So, so even if it was limited to Silicon Valley, there is still a lot of money there. Uh and, and I would also bring in another point that Michael Saylor, uh who, who's the CEO of MicroStrategy, likes to mention a lot, which is that Bitcoiners are like cyber hornets on the internet. You will not find any group of people more passionate. You'll never find a you know a group of shareholders who are as passionate about the stock that they own as as Bitcoin maximalists are about Bitcoin. So you have this, um, you have this built-in, uh, group of evangelizers who want to go out and explain to other people why Bitcoin is superior. And, And there are multiple reasons. Part of it is ideological. Part of it is that, that there is an affinity. They want to see the world change and, uh, and to have more freedom. But also part of it is they have skin in the game. They have their savings in Bitcoin and it, it benefits them to go out and and to speak with people and explain why this is a superior thing to save in, uh, to gold or, or dollars. And we, we live in a, in a time where people are receptive to this message because the dollar is obviously being debased as quickly as the fed can debase it. Um, so, uh, your, your other point about, uh, so you have to remind me your second point about
0: uh, the digital gold sort of as the script as, as a, just the disruption being inherent in it, rather than it just being like, oh yeah, there's gold and then there's digital gold and they're kind of both, you know, the same thing versus like actually competing in some way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I find really interesting now that I, I remember it, when you bring that up is that gold is Bitcoin's closest cousin in sort of the family of global financial assets. They're very similar. They're they're both monetary goods. They're both sort of scarce assets. Um, They they have a lot of similar attributes, but if you think about the ownership base of gold, it's very, very different to the ownership base of Bitcoin. The ownership base of gold, if if you think about it, is central banks and to a large extent, people in India uh, and and people around the world who want to have gold jewelry, um, there really is not much retail demand for gold. Whereas Bitcoin is very different. Most of the demand that comes for Bitcoin comes from retail, which is just regular people that could be tech investors or uh, early, uh, early adopters of technology or uh, libertarians. These aren't necessarily institutions, or I think that's going to change in this cycle um, th- these are people who just believe in it themselves and want to invest some money. And these are not people who typically own gold. And if you think about like generationally millennials, ask any millennial how much gold they own. They'll laugh at you. Be, I-, I bet you, I would think that less than one in a hundred millennials has any meaningful savings in gold. Uh, but ask the same group, how, how many of them have some savings in Bitcoin I bet you it's a significant uh, number of them. And really, I think you can see the future in the present if you have a keen enough eye. If you, you pay attention to what young savers and um, young entrepreneurs, young business people are doing today with their savings, I think it gives you an indication of what is going to happen in the future. And I think it it sort of points to a very, very bright future for Bitcoin and a shift away from these old traditional assets into something that's defining this generation, which is monetary debasement.
0: This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today.
1: Looking for the best way to stay on top of your investment game? Nexo.io has you covered in three easy steps with their high yield savings account for digital assets. Step one, create an account at Nexo.io. Step two, transfer assets to your secure Nexo wallet with no minimum or maximum limits on funds deposited. Step three, sit back, relax, and earn up to 10% compounding interest, paid out daily on your crypto and fiat. Your passive income made simple. Get started at Nexo.io. With this idea
0: of the the fourth framework, the world's Reserve Currency Framework, I guess my question. This is this is obviously a big one, and, and you know, so much. What I want to talk about next is maybe this kind of bull run that seems to be really getting some wind under its sails, and how it differs. But uh, but in that context, obviously, digital gold is so much where the narrative is. But I want to spend just a second on the world's reserve currency thing. Do you think that the rise in the discussion of central bank digital currencies, which have become uh, they've gone from something that we talked about over here in you know places like CoinDesk and on Twitter last year to things that are being talked about in every government and every bank for international settlements meeting. Right, they are at the very top of the global kind of monetary agenda. Do you think that that increases or decreases the likelihood of uh, of people ascribing to this valuation framework and seeing Bitcoin this way?
2: Yeah, certainly might sort of encourage the narrative to hear these institutions, which uh, are still trusted, at least by institutional investors, certainly among regular people, there's a, a massive drop in trust in central banks. So it may, may help the narrative amongst people who are in Wall Street, uh, who are managing large amounts of money and have uh, get them to think a little bit more about Bitcoin. I sort of, I, I see it as a little irrelevant to the monetization of Bitcoin because I think, you know, a central bank digital currency to me is almost an oxymoron. The dollar is fundamentally uh, a digital currency. The vast majority of dollars that are owned are owned digitally. I don't, the dollars that I do have, you know, not that many, but the the, the ones I do have are not under my mattress. They're not in my wallet. They're in a bank account um, or on Venmo or something like that. Uh, so what you're talking about with Bitcoin that's fundamentally different to the idea of a digital currency is one that can't be manipulated by a central party and that has fixed supply. And that makes it really special. And what, what's especially important is that there's credibility in that monetary policy. People will look at Bitcoin and say, actually, I do believe that there is only 21 million Bitcoins. And because I believe that, I want to invest in it if you think about a central bank like the federal reserve coming out and saying, well, we're creating a cryptocurrency too. Uh, Well, why do I believe that it's fixed in supply? (laughs) Tell me why I should believe that it's never going to be fixed in supply because central bankers believe in the manipulation of uh, the money supply. They think it's good for the economy to manipulate the money supply. So they've already shot themselves in the foot in terms of credibility. So I, I'm, I'm very skeptical of the idea that central banks are, are going to create something that competes with Bitcoin. Maybe they'll create some kind of replacement to the dollar um, that travels over borders a little more easily. But then again, that already kind of exists. If you think about something like Tether, it, it's essentially uh, a dollar cryptocurrency. The, the downside with Tether is that you have to trust the uh, organization which issues tethers, and perhaps there's a, a somewhat greater amount of trust in the Federal Reserve to not, um, you know, be raided by by the police and and to fall apart, which is a risk when you're when you're buying tether. That wherever they're holding those dollars that are backing the tethers that are out there, those could be raided or the bank account could be closed. Um, so, I, I personally do not find this discussion that central banks are having is particularly interesting or a threat uh, to Bitcoin in any way. And I honestly, to to bring up a sort of slightly related topic, I I don't, I feel the same way about um, Libra, which is Facebook's attempt at this same thing, um, which is to sort of issue uh, a pegged stable coin that can be, you know, transmitted globally. And that's, they argue is not controlled by them, but by a, a group of various companies and uh, payment processes around the world. I I don't think it's any threat to Bitcoin either.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I actually, I I would go in the exact opposite direction and, uh, you know, instead of it being a threat, I think that eh, I think that it articulates the raise on debt for an open monetary system so much more than even now, right? We still have layers of abstraction like I think that part of what made this year so remarkable was the coincidence of the global response, the global central bank response to COVID shutdowns happening at the exact same moment as the having, that's what clicked for so many of these institutional buyers that like, okay, unlimited money, like fixed money. And that that just that comparison was so acute. And I think what you're going to see with central bank digital currencies, which I believe are completely inevitable, is the basically the coming together of monetary and fiscal policy. And there will be, for, for a lot of people, they will experience it mostly this same but with a slightly more efficiency which is fine but for people who are in the business of money and paying attention to it the 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 ability to manipulate the money supply will be will be a, a tool so that having a thing having kind of the the reification of digital money as the what what money really is but then to have the the dramatically different examples of this system that is open uncontrollable by any centralized party and fixed in supply versus every government kind of constantly tinkering with their their policy on a you know a day-to-day week-to-week kind of level i actually think could could drive the interest in an opt-out maybe not at first kind of on a governmental level but but certainly on a corporate level on an industry level um, in a big way but it's i feel like that's going to be a conversation that we continue to have which is why i love that you put it in this this valuation framework as something where we really aren't discussing it in that way yet at least aside from pieces like this but i think it's going to come up more and more Um, i want to. Shift though, you know, I kind of alluded to maybe what's made this year different. And, you know, you tweeted the other day, I think anyone who experienced the 2016 2017 bull market knows this feeling late 2016, unremitting bullish action that almost no one outside of the Bitcoin community was paying attention to. Um, And you had actually spent some time even last year talking about what we've learned through previous hype cycles, through previous bull market cycles. And I'd love to go back to some of that. There was a concept that you had that I thought was really interesting called like supply. Overhang basically uh, at the at the beginning of a bull market. So maybe you can just talk about that and more broadly, just kind of get at like what your sense of where we are in in the cycle. Did it start actually in 2019? Is this a 2020 phenomenon? I just love your take on that.
2: Yeah, for sure. I, so I wrote a, a thread on this topic in mid 2019, and that's when I thought, um, I that's when I believed it was obvious that we were at the, right at the beginning of a new bull market. And so I wanted to revisit what is it that we know about bull markets? How do they proceed? Um, and, and what are the kind of things that you're going to see in a bull market? And, and, and so you, you've already mentioned this. The early stages of the bull market are sort of uh, defined by accumulation, um, by strong hands, people who after the sort of uh, precipitous crash really strongly, viscerally believe in the value proposition and they begin accumulating as quickly as they they can. And and really, I I think from early 2019 to mid-2019, you saw significant accumulation of Bitcoin. You can sort of look at this also. There are various metrics that you can look at on the blockchain where um, Bitcoin sort of accumulate into certain addresses and just stay there and don't move. That's a good sign of Uh, hodler accumulation. And and that's what if you're paying attention that that's what you would have seen during mid 2019. Um, And then sort of you start getting people uh, who were interested in Bitcoin before, but then dismissed it when it crashed coming back in and saying, hey, wait a second, this thing hasn't disappeared. It's still it's still kicking. Um, And it seems to be uh, slowly increasing in price. And those people start coming in as well. And you, then you get people like Mike, Michael Saylor, for instance, who's been paying attention to Bitcoin for a while. And it's like, okay, this hasn't died. I have some conviction. I'm going to put some savings into it. Then eventually, slowly but surely, you approach, uh, approach the, the previous all-time high. And this is where I, I talked about the supply overhang. What you have psychologically when you approach a new, uh, sorry, the previous all-time high which was about twenty thousand um, dollars, nineteen thousand six hundred to be precise. You have people who wanted to sell at that level, and they had uh, they in psychologically they had some vision in their mind of what their lifestyle would have been like if they had sold at that point. Like if I had just sold my bitcoins at twenty thousand, I could have done. X, Y, Z could have bought a big house or a yacht or a fast car, that, those sorts of things. And, and so when you get close to the all-time high, those people feel this strong urge to diversify some of the savings that they weren't able to because they missed out on that small window. Uh, and what, what I mean by small window is small window of time. When Bitcoin reaches an all-time high, the, the price moves very quickly in a short amount of time. So, people think of the all time high as 20,000, but if you think about it in terms of time, the time it took to go from 10,000 to 20,000 was, I think, a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, And the time it took to go from 15,000 to 20,000 was a couple of days. And from 17,000 to 20,000 was a couple of hours. So, that was a window of time in which Uh, very few people actually got to trade. It's just a headline number. It's a number where people think, oh, that was the all-time high. But it has a very powerful psychological draw to people who have a significant amount of savings in Bitcoin, which is, oh, I wish I had sold some of my savings into that high. And so as you get there, these people sell, uh, they become the last sort of hurdle that um, the market has to get over the last amount of supply that will be diversified into the market before Bitcoin. So I, I described as being in open fields or open pastures and can run free because there is no longer anyone uh, who wished they had sold in the previous cycle because you're in sort of a new price territory. Once you get there, that's when Bitcoin starts moving really quickly. There's two 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 main reasons that I think. One is that those people who wanted to sell now have had the opportunity, they've been given the opportunity, it's gone past the all-time high. And the second reason is the media comes in and the media only starts paying attention amazingly when Bitcoin reaches an all-time high because it's a headline number again. It's like, oh, Bitcoin has reached that crazy level that we all said was crazy uh, three or four years ago. And we derided it and we said, this thing is going to die. It's dropped 80%. It's never coming back, but it's got back there. And so the media uh, uh, takes an interest and that starts, the, that starts the FOMO phase, the parabolic phase of the bull market. When, when Bitcoin starts, the price movements start accelerating really quickly and the volatility comes back and you'll see uh, intraday moves of like 5 to 10%. Um, we are not there yet. And I think that that process is probably going to play out over the next year or so, but we are approaching it uh, very quickly. One question I have is whether the shift in demand for Bitcoin, where the demand is coming from, is going to dampen the cycle slightly. Um, I believe the demand is now coming from institutional investors and institutional investors generally have uh, a stronger hand than retail investors. They're less prone to, um, uh, for want of a better description, puking up their position. Um, and I think when an institutional investor puts money into Bitcoin or, you know, the CEO of a company, someone like um, uh, Michael Saylor, they're really in it for the long term. They're they're in it for you know five to ten years. And so I think it's interesting that this cycle might be one where the volatility is dampened, or at least it's an open question whether that will be the case or not.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting. It's one of the things that I saw you point out uh, at some point over the course of the last week that, well, one, that li- like sourcing liquidity at the scale that a lot of these buyers want is actually meaningfully Difficult at this point, right? Being able to buy as many Bitcoin as you want, like that could just be, it could be that actually the base price of Bitcoin based on who wants to buy and the amount that they want to buy in is higher than we're already seeing reflected. It's just taking a moment to catch up. So I'd love you to explore on that. I also thought it was that was an interesting point paired with the fact that these massive buys that have been happening haven't actually moved the market the way that you would have expected even, you know, a couple years ago.
2: That's an interesting question. Like, so, so, just sorry to step back. The price of Bitcoin is set on the margin. It's the last Bitcoin was traded. What is the price of that? That's what we call the price of Bitcoin. But if you were to look at it another way and say, let's look at all of the Bitcoins out there, and what what is the price you assign to each Bitcoin? And by that I mean, how much money would it take to get that Bitcoin out of the hands of the person who owns it? For a lot of Bitcoin, that number is very very high there are a lot of people who own bitcoin who would not relinquish their bitcoin if you paid them 100,000. dollars They are truly in this for the long term for the next 10 20 years gener- generationally almost um you know people buying bitcoin for their kids and locking it away in cold storage um so yeah if you if, if you look at it that way i think the price of bitcoin is as you say much higher If we return to the question of accumulating Bitcoin now, institutions accumulating Bitcoin, there was a small window, I believe, um, in early 2020 to mid-2020 where it was still possible to accumulate a sizable position without moving the market. I think that is impossible now. I think it's essentially impossible. And I think the total number of tradable Bitcoins that you can accumulate under 20,000 is probably, this is my gut feeling, it's not precise, but it's probably in the tens of thousands of Bitcoin. Uh, And and so that gives you what what a dollar value of somewhere in the order of $200 million worth of Bitcoin that can be accumulated under 20,000. If you think of Michael Saylor and the the purchase that he made for his company, he accumulated 38,000 Bitcoins. So I don't think there is enough Supply out there to accumulate bitcoins under 20,000 for more than a handful of large investors. And there are a lot of large investors who are now thinking about getting a position in Bitcoin. Even today on Twitter, you see Ray Dalio uh, sort of talking about hey, you know, I've dismissed Bitcoin, but I'm open. I'm open to arguments about why this is important. So hit me with your best arguments. That is a really important point. He is now at the psychological point where he is open to hearing about and understanding, um, and, and perhaps reconsidering Bitcoin. And that's a process that I think almost everyone who's come to Bitcoin goes through. I went through that process where I dismissed it and, um, it it took, you know, some time and speaking to people I really trust before I changed my mind, uh, and, and, and sorry, this is a little digression from what you brought up, but uh, this, is a, this is something I've written about as well, which is the number of touch points that are required before someone gets interested in allocating savings to Bitcoin. And it, it's kind of a measure of how receptive a person is to thinking about alternative ideas. For some people, they hear about Bitcoin once or twice and they're already open because they had an affinity, an ideological affinity, to something like Bitcoin. And so they say, yeah, cool, let me see what this is about. For other people, they will need five to ten people that they trust to tell them, hey, you should think about this Bitcoin thing. This is a great investment. Like my mother, for example, uh, you know, I've been talking to her about Bitcoin for a long time, but she probably needs to hear about it from five to 10 of her friends. And then something, the light bulb will go off in her head and she'll say, hey, I I should think about this because the people who uh, are in my circle of friends are thinking about it as well. Um, And so to go back to Ray Dalio, he's probably got some people he trusts who are saying, hey, you should check this out. This this is going to be big. Um, This is going to rival gold. This is the next big investment opportunity for this decade. So think about it. And and from what I've heard, there are investors like Bill Miller who are sort of actively evangelizing him saying, "Go go and think about Bitcoin and see if you want to allocate some capital to it.
0: It was interesting because Dalio, so I watched Dalio's comments, the most recent ones, and I don't think the question was planned. I think that it, it kind of caught him off guard because, which would explain why the arguments were so fundamentally like 2017, 2018. It didn't feel like something where he had recently spent time re-upping his thesis and had a lot of conviction with it, which is why it wasn't super surprising, but still encouraging to see him on Twitter, as you were mentioning, engaging around this and being like, listen, you know, like I, I'm I'm open to New arguments. It almost felt like he like, uh, felt m- misrepresented by himself in terms of how convicted he was around these criticisms or concerns. Not that he didn't still have them, but that it's kind of like he, he was basically saying in some ways without quite admitting it, like, if I'm using the wrong framework to think about this, I'm open to a different framework, which I think is, a, to your point, a really healthy place to be and probably reflects a lot of folks who are sharing their different frameworks for how to think about it.
2: Right, right, and, and if you think about the waters that he's swimming in, I I bet you there are people that he trusts uh, or whose opinion he values that, that has, have started talking about Bitcoin, um, like someone like Peter Thiel. I don't know if they they swim in the same waters, but Peter Thiel has been talking about Bitcoin for the last year. And if you're someone who um, values his insight into the future and you know what he did with Facebook and Palantir and various other things, you hear him say hey, our, our biggest bet uh, right now is Bitcoin. If you hear him say something like that, you're going to be like, your ears are going to prick up and you're going to think, maybe I should be thinking about this as well. So I think this is going to be the cycle where there are a lot of people like Ray Dalio who want to get in and be, are starting to get interested. The problem for them is that we are approaching the parabolic phase of the bull market where accumulation so accumulation of Large amounts of Bitcoin can be done without slippage. Uh, And slippage is a term to describe when you put on a position or a large position, you shift the price a lot. Uh, Once you're in the parabolic phase, there is no way to accumulate Bitcoin without shifting the price because everybody is going to be falling over themselves doing the same thing.
0: So I know that you have, uh, I don't have you for too long. I could talk to you about this stuff forever, but I want to come back to the bullish case for Bitcoin. And uh, and and what has changed? You know, obviously, this thing has been translated into like sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. So, I think it's twenty languages now. Twenty languages.
2: Yeah, just got a, a message DM from someone who translated into Japanese, and another one who translated into Farsi, which is, you know, it, it blows my mind. When I wrote this article, I had no idea that it would have the traction it did. It was meant for a small group of friends plus hopefully a few people in Wall Street to kind of wrap their mind around Bitcoin. So yeah, I, it's just incredible to think that something I've written has been read that many times. And you know, I get people all around the world messaging me saying, hey, this is what got me into Bitcoin. It's really, really humbling.
0: So it sounds like from what you're saying that it could be translated exactly into one more language and then people have to stop just for the perfect, beautiful symmetry of 20, 21 languages. Yeah, that would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um no, so I I guess I, I wanted to ask your thoughts, you know, one of the pieces with it. I mean, it really to me is I think why it's so resonant is that it it's not making it, it's it's setting the entire historical context for money and why this would be valuable uh in a way that's super accessible. It's just the right level of depth. But you do spend a little time towards the end talking about, you know, the difference between kind of fud and real risks, right? And the real risks back then you talked about were Protocol risks, exchange shutdowns, fungibility. What do you see as the biggest risks now? You know, we've talked a lot about the corporate treasury movement, the institutional investors coming in. Do those things potentially uh, presage some sort of co-optation, or is that not something you're worried about? I mean, if you had to actually pin down what you do think are are meaningful risks or challenges now, what would they be?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great question and it's something that I want to re- revisit. I'm, I'm working on a second version of the article and that's definitely the issue I want to most address, which is what, how, how's, how has the risk profile changed? So you mentioned protocol risk. I, I think that risk always exists. You're, you've built a, a monetary good on top of cryptography and if there's some fundamental change in the technology or theory behind cryptography that breaks Bitcoin security that could break the value proposition uh, completely and immediately. However, I think that risk has vanished to Epsilon or some tiny number. Uh, Bitcoin has survived the test of time. It's had the world's best cryptographers and computer scientists banging on it for a decade. Well, I don't really worry about that risk at all. Um, one of the other risks I think I mentioned was competition. Um, I personally uh, discount that risk much more now than I did back then. I think it's much clearer that Bitcoin is dominant. The networks, network effects are far too powerful. The brand is too powerful. Whenever you talk about any other cryptocurrency, Bitcoin is always going to be mentioned. Um, So I, I, I don't worry about that so much. I think exchange shutdowns is probably... Uh, the risk I think about the most, but as a small part of the bigger risk, which is state attack, um, I think the biggest risk going forward for Bitcoin is a concerted nation state attack on Bitcoin, which will involve many different things. It could be um, shutting down exchanges, banning it in in your country. Uh, It could be um, uh, requirements to report your Ownership of Bitcoin, um, which I think is very, uh, it's a very scary possibility because one of the things that um, you could call a weakness of Bitcoin is that it's not fully private. Um, The blockchain is completely transparent and uh, um, the amount that's held in a particular address and where that amount goes is fully transparent and recorded for all time. So if governments start requiring that people report their Bitcoin, I think that's a very scary future unless um, uh, technologies are developed that dramatically improve the privacy of Bitcoin. Um, And and another sort of related one to that is there's this thing called an F bar requirement. I'm not sure if you've you've, uh, heard of it, but the US government requires that anyone who has More than $10,000, which is, if you think about it, uh, a sort of uh, a diminishing amount of money. $10,000 back in the 70s when these numbers were created was a significant amount of money, but $10,000 today is not. If you have $10,000 overseas uh, in any form, uh, you have to report every bank account, uh, the account number, the amount you have in it, Um, which country it's in, you have to report all of this stuff to the U.S. government. Uh, And one of the concerns I have is the U.S. government might start applying FBAR rules to Bitcoin, uh, which I think would be a chilling precedent if they did that. They currently don't require you to do that, but that could change in the future. Um, But I I think a concerted nation state attack um, is something that we should expect as Bitcoin eclipses gold's market capitalization. Gold has always been a monetary threat to central banks because it sort of it provides um, an escape hatch for people who say, the monetary policy of my country is insane. It is affecting my family and my savings. And I want to get out. I want to be in something that I can trust and get out, get out into gold. And so nation states over time have put all sorts of restrictions on gold. Uh, And if you go back to um, the original nation state attack, it was on gold in in 1933 when Franklin Roosevelt uh, issued an executive order confiscating all the gold in the US. If you had any savings in uh, a bank lockbox, you no, no longer those savings. You were given a piece of paper instead, that dollar amount, and a uh, dollar at the time was worth um, sorry, twenty dollars at the time was worth an ounce of gold. And what they did was they said, okay, you you don't get your gold anymore. We're going to give you dollars, the, the equivalent dollars, but we're going to change the exchange rate to be less. So uh, if, if you have an ounce of gold, you, you're you're going to be given um, thirty dollars. Oh, sorry. 20, uh, $15. I can't got to figure out which way it is, but you got less dollars than um, uh, the gold was worth. Uh, so I think the advantage that Bitcoin has is that it's much more decentralized than gold. Gold was because of its physicality has a centralizing tendency where you don't want to store it in your house. You find a place to store it, which is usually a bank. And those banks become very, um, uh, tasty targets like honeypots for nation states to attack. Um, so I think a nation state attack on Bitcoin will be more difficult than it was against gold, but I think it'll it'll happen. And I think it's probably I would think it would happen in the range of somewhere 500,000 to a million dollars uh, for a price on Bitcoin when it starts affecting monetary policy for nation states when they start saying, hey, we can't change the interest rate here because people are jumping out of our currency into Bitcoin. So we're losing control over monetary policy. We need to clamp down on this. Um, and I tweeted about this several years ago, I think it was 2018 or maybe 2017. There was an article in the wall street journal uh, where, where the journalist said um, central banks are starting to get a sense. Of this could be a problem where if, If enough people put their savings into Bitcoin, they lose control over monetary policy. And I wrote at the time that this is the first inkling that the establishment has got that Bitcoin is a threat to their power structure. That's the threat that I worry about. That's the threat that I think is the only meaningful threat from here until Bitcoin gets to a million dollars.
0: Super interesting. We, we could do a whole show. In fact, at some point, we should do a whole show just on that. Maybe we'll have you back and do a, a little roundtable. But for now, I, I want to say first, I really appreciate your time, both on the show and also the time that you put into helping educate uh, and give people resources to learn. I guess by way of a last question, um, you know, we're about to, if not already, in some very heady times, especially for folks who haven't necessarily lived through one of these hype cycles. Do you have any words of wisdom for people who are watching these numbers rip up, who will start to see those, those press articles come in, and who are, who are trying to keep it together, basically, as that happens.
2: I've written about this, and one sort of observation I'll make is that your conviction in Bitcoin is tested far more strongly in a bull market than it is in a bear market. Uh, being able to hold your Bitcoins in anticipation that this is going to become a reserve currency I think it will. That's my belief in the long term that it will. is very, very difficult when the bitcoins you own move from you know a small fraction of your savings to a meaningful number or a life changing number, as it has for many people in the last ten years. Um, so, as a lot of people say, prepare your body because <laughs> it's a wild, <laughs> it's a wild, wild ride. And if you haven't been on one of these before, uh, you'll experience what what I'm talking about. I think a lot of people over this cycle are going to learn that um, holding Bitcoins is hard. The people who have held Bitcoins for a substantial amount of time have done something that's psychologically very, very difficult. And so they they do deserve credit. Um, they didn't get lucky. They had conviction. Uh, and if you're going to benefit from Bitcoin going to the future, you really need conviction to hold this asset, it will be volatile as it's growing. And um, so brace yourself.
0: That's my advice. Awesome, VJ. Thank you so much for hanging out today. We really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, Nathaniel. There is a lot to unpack there, but the thing that I keep thinking about is Vijay's last valuation framework, the idea of Bitcoin as the world's reserve currency. I think it's fair to say that most people aren't thinking in those terms. But as I mentioned during the show, I believe that the growth in the conversation around central bank digital currencies will, in fact, make people have that conversation more with regard to Bitcoin than if those CBDCs weren't so on the agenda. I believe that these CBDCs are going to dramatically highlight the benefits of an open, non sovereign monetary system that is going to drive not just individuals, but some corporations, to look to Bitcoin as an alternative. It's also interesting to me that when VJ is articulating his real threat, the threat that he's actually worried about, a sovereign-level attack, it strikes me that that will only come, or that could only come to fruition, in the context that some meaningful portion of the world actually does start to see Bitcoin through that fourth valuation idea. What's clear is that there is a long way to go yet on this journey even if it feels like such a seminal moment as we approach that all-time high psychological barrier. It is going to be wild to see what next and I'm excited to keep bringing you people like VJ to help you explore it. If you enjoy this show please go give it a rating or review. I really appreciate everyone who's taken the time to do that and until tomorrow guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.
1: This episode is brought to you in part by Purina. Purina is dedicated to creating richer lives for pets and the people who love them. From helping older pets think like their younger selves, to making cat ownership a possibility for more people than ever, Purina is helping pets thrive so they can live long, healthy, and happy lives. Purina has you covered for all your furry friends' needs, whether they meow or bark. From litter to treats to their best-in-class, nutrient-packed food with taste your pets will love. Purina's got your back at every stage of your pet's life. Your pet gives you the joy of the spring sunshine all year round. So today and every day, care for your pet with Purina. Your pet is Purina's passion. To learn more, head to Amazon.com backslash Purina. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.